Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, saying, A child is born to you, a son, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon, because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave, and her womb forever great. Why did I come forth from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Some days it feels like those words just read our minds like a book. If you're fortunate, it only happens across one day here or there. More often, it feels like it's a whole season, like it's a week or a month where it just feels like circumstances of life are just collapsing around us. I wish I could, but I can't honestly say do this or that or the other thing and you'll never know these kinds of words or feelings again. Or I can't say, you know, become a Christian, you'll never know these ideas or these kinds of situations again. If I'm being totally honest, dangers and toils and snares kind of the theme of this series that we're going through and how they're a part of life as a human being, believer and non-believer together. It's like, great, Brian, you started Easter in despair two weeks ago, and now you're going to start this week the same way? Well, okay, maybe I am. But see this as a good thing. The Bible is honest as well because it has stories and, and truths like this that aren't censored out to make the Bible try and look good. The hope of its message stems from this truth that sometimes life is just plain rough. We make a mistake and we feel worthless. We maybe fail a test and we tell ourselves we're stupid. We get into a fight with a friend or a spouse and the thought just crosses our mind, even for a split second, can I unfriend this person as easily in real life as I do online? And that's just in our own little bubbles. Like Easter, yes, we're starting with an honest truth. The fact is the same Bible and the same God that tells it like it is, Hey, sometimes life is rough. Gives us hope for even those very kinds of times. Check it out in this very passage out of Romans 8. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us. Will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I'm continuing the idea of being honest, I could close my eyes, throw a dart, and hit a reason that I can call this passage a hope manifesto especially when it was written by a man who did all those kinds of things that I talked about in my introduction, who failed a test, who did stupid things, who looked at friends and probably could have think, thought, could I unfriend them? 
who had situations, even in this very letter, just one chapter before, where he's like, you know what, I wish my mom had never borne me. If you're feeling brave, check that out. Read Romans 7. We're in Romans 8 right now. Go back one chapter to Romans 7. Uh, do it this way, though. Don't do it in a dark room with Beethoven's Moonlight, Moonlight Sonata playing because it is really depressing. But Paul, you know, Paul beats himself up about who he had been in the past. Yet this hope manifesto counts for him. Knowing what the valley looked like, he can tell us of what the mountaintop looks like and the strength of God's grip on those who love him. There's something to grasp. Every few words in this passage, it's so pregnant with hope coming out of it that we're going to chop it up a little bit. So we look at it piece by piece. And I promise even then we're only going to scratch the surface of all that Paul gives us. He, he reminds us, if God is for us. Verse 31, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? This is one of those passages that Christians love to put on coffee cups and t-shirts and hats and all that sort of stuff. If God is for us, then who can be against us? That's not a bad thing. It's one of those passages that I have in my head for this sort of series in progress called Coffee Cup Christianity. All those things that we put on, on Pinterest or on coffee cups to remind us of, of these truths. But what's to keep us from just saying, heard it, said it, bought the t-shirt, bought the mug, all that. I just rattle it off and move on. Know this. This is where the, the hope starts. The question that Paul is asking, if God is for us, then who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. It could be read, since God is for us, then who could be against us? It, it's considered a, a given. God, the Father of Jesus Christ, is for us. It's kind of like this biblical cause and effect statement that works kind of like this. Maybe you can follow this one. If I smash my thumb with a hammer, then I will scream. Cause, effect. If God is for us, then all the rest of this passage, all the hope that comes from it flows from that. That's a massive claim. And there's a lot of repercussions if this statement is true or if this idea is true. So it begs the question, how do we know that it's true? It's worth asking because there's a lot of hope that we're going to stick on this idea. As I said, it's a massive claim. So it begs, it begs a good question. How do we know that it's true? Well, let's look at what God did. We see it in verse 32. He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Take this from a papa bear dad. I will be one who will go through a thousand different options before I even consider that idea of give up my son. Now, I'll admit there are some days where I'm like, okay, let's go through two or three options and then, hey, let's talk. You know, any parent will acknowledge that. But I say a thousand poetically because in reality, it would be like, you know what, over my dead body. Maybe you've heard the phrase, I would move heaven and earth for you. Well, here's the fact. God could say that and back it up. God had millions of options before having to entertain that option, giving up my son. After that, after choosing and being willing to do that, all the other conditions become child's play to God. The hope continues. 
Who will bring any charges? Verse, th- verse 33. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So in this cosmic context, and we are talking, you know, broadening the scope of things a little bit. What are these charges that Paul is talking about? Sin. I know that's a, kind of a word that we have an allergy to in, in this day and age. But it's a word that defines those times that we blow off what God tells us to do or tells us what not to do. It's like sin is basically saying to God, maybe you made me from nothing, but I know what's best for me, better than you do. Ultimately, I mean, that's a pretty pragmatic version or definition of what sin is. Ultimately, sin is an offense against God. And if God was willing to give up his own son for us, It means God is the only one who has a right to seek retribution for that, right? So how does God choose to respond to sin, to us saying, you know what, God, I know better than you? God could have forced us to pay the penalty ourselves, could have left us to our own devices, to our own wisdom, which would have gotten us into plenty of trouble by itself. But had we been forced to pay the penalty of that ourselves, that would have made my opening passage from Jeremiah look like a walk in the park. But rather, he justifies us through Jesus Christ. Okay, great. What a prize. On the surface, it looks like a buildup to a huge gift. And then it turns out that that gift is an enrollment in the Jelly of the Month Club. I get it. It's a $6 phrase for Justified is a $6 phrase for in Christ, in Jesus, we are just as if I'd never sinned at all. Jesus took the one thing that did separate us from hope in hard times, sin, and he dealt with it once and for all. As Paul says earlier in this letter, in Romans 6.10, The death he, Jesus, died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives... He lives to God. When life seems like an ominous mountain just surrounding us and ready to collapse on top of us, are you starting to see some of the footholds that Paul is giving us here to hang on to? Something to grasp hope from? It continues in verse 35 when he says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? We could expand this idea to, or this question to say, what will separate us? And it will still be true. Because Paul does kind of this ramp up from hardship all the way to sword, to death, and everything in between. He almost overstates it just to be sure that he's got it covered. Thinking like a, a logical lawyer, like, all right, where's the loophole in this? I got to make sure I got it all plugged up because nothing will separate us after what Christ has done to deal with sin. And you know what? Paul is a guy who's experienced it all. He's not just some dude blowing smoke. Like he doesn't know what hardship is. For every word that he puts in here about hardship, about hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, he's faced all of, he's got 12 examples of all of them in his life. He lays it out in 2 Corinthians 11. It's one of those resumes, as I said, opening up the service. It's one of those resumes you do not want to try and one-up Paul on this one. The conviction in his words is real. 
And so is the hope that he offers. It's why we can say, will the loss of a job separate us from the love of Christ? No. In all this, we are more than conquerors. Will family tragedy separate us from the love and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ? No. In all of this, we are more than conquerors. Will a pandemic separate us from the love of Christ and the hope we have in Christ? No. In all this, we are more than conquerors. Are you sick of me driving this home yet? If so, good. Comment, yes, I'm sick of it. Stop giving me examples of it. Because the next time you can't sleep, I want it to be because you cannot get this truth out of your head. In all this, we are more than conquerors through Christ. For I am convinced, Paul says in verse 38 and 39, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. This is Paul's hope manifesto right here. Nothing across time, across space, across all the heavens will separate us from God's love. Nothing can snatch God's people from his hand. As Jesus says in John 10, 28, he says, I will give them eternal life and they will never perish No one will snatch them out of my hand. Nothing we can do, nothing that can be done to us is able to separate us from the love of God. Said, again, by a man who's done it all. He has a dark past of things that he has done as far as taking people who believe this and putting them through those kinds of paces. And he's had it all done to him. Sound good yet? This idea that nothing can separate us from the love of God? I hope so, because here's the golden thread that ties it all together. Out of verse 39, in Jesus Christ our Lord. See, when Paul uses the word us in any, in any of this manifesto that he's writing, he's referring to Christians. He's referring to those who have trusted Jesus to deal with the sin that we talked about before, to offer the forgiveness, to offer the paying the price for it so that we don't have to. Because outside of Jesus, the fact is all this hope that we talk about, this whole manifesto of hope is just ink on a page. It's just words on a page. Maybe poetically written, but that's about it. The good news is being in Christ, having being in Christ Jesus our Lord, as Paul says in Romans 8.39, it's not a complicated thing. It's believing that Jesus died for our sins. It's trusting that in Jesus alone we are forgiven. And with that comes all these promises and all this hope. If we are in Jesus, if we have trusted Jesus, then all this hope comes out of it. Another way that the if-then idea works out in this manifesto of hope. So this week, As your feet hit the floor each morning and any other time you need it to do so, I want you to remind yourself of this truth. Christ conquers all conditions. All hope flows from that one idea. And with that idea in mind, with that truth in hand, what could stand against you? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for the hope you offer in this truth, 
that because of you, nothing can separate us from the love of your Father. Help us to hang on to that, even when it feels like the world is collapsing around us. Help us to hang on to you and to trust in you for that hope. 